As we begin this new series on 1 Corinthians, the first thing obviously that comes to our mind is the city of Corinth. And I, I'm, I'm sure many of you went to uh, Europe and uh, Greece. In the southern part of uh, Greece, in the first century, ancient city of Corinth was cosmopolitan. It, it was very wealthy, diverse city, very important city in terms of uh, trades. And in terms of cultural activity, there was a lot going on. So the reason why I said is we might as well call first Californians, and there are much of similarities uh, in this church. So as we look to the first Corinthians, we see the similar issues, what we call it a hot potatoes. No one touches it. Hot issues. We're going to actually talk about gender roles and church divisions, singleness and divorce, sexual immorality, you name it. It's full of it. But let's go to the city first. Let's find out. It was the capital of the Roman colony. The southern part was called Achaia and located close the isthmus between Adriatic or and Asian seas. So if you look at this, no wonder why this is look at this isthmus here. It's called the whole thing is called the isthmus of Corinth. But in order for people to to go from let's say from Asia modern-day Turkey, from Ephesus, let's say. So they're going this way to go Rome. Instead of going around, what, what they often did was in part in the one side of the harbor, and it was only four miles. So they'll put everything. If it's a boat, it's, the ship is small, they'll put it on the cart and actually take four miles or unload and up, you know, uh, reload again here to go. And it was a notoriously difficult to travel in terms of uh, current and weather. So no wonder this is a very strategic city in terms of trays and all those the people who are diverse people are coming, converging uh, together. So in In one side, um, on the west side, Lechaim, and the east side is Centre. The two harbors were located, and the city of the center of commerce, and it was one of the wealthiest cities in Roman colony in first centuries. So materialistic, yes, definitely. But it was also a cosmopolitan city, proud of its wealth and Greek philosophy and culture. The famous uh, Isthmian 
games were held every other year. It was a, a, probably uh, the whole region was participating. Of, of course, Olympics was the, the most uh, famous one. But second to Olympics, the Isthmian games were. So people were very uh, in love with, passionate for sports and games like Californians as well. Also, lastly, it was a center of sensu sensuality and immorality, the temple of, temple of Aphrodite. Aphrodite, the Greek version of Venus, goddess of love, sex, and fertility, and beauty. Um, and the, the many historians will tell us because of the worship of fertility god, goddess, and the love and sex, their priestess, or even the male prostitutes and woman prostitutes, it will be part of the, it's hard to believe that, part of their religious worship experience. Having sex, you know, of course. Historians will tell us there are thousands male and female prostitutes in the temple. So over-sexualized culture? Definitely. Everything about California, sex sells, and the Hollywood and movie and other things are continually becoming more open. Uh, to sex and sexuality, and even uh, different versions of, divergence of uh, sex as well. The word Corinth became equivalent word for sexually immoral or loose. So when you say, oh, she's like Corinth, Corinthian woman, meaning she's a really loose woman. The word Corinthianized meant to participate in sexual immorality or to practice fornication. So it, it's more than just the, the part of the town that became very sensual immorality, but the whole city and this was a large city among the, probably one of the largest cities in that first century among the Roman colonies. Historians, some of the, the record shows that 700,000 people, that's a huge in the first century uh, standard. And notice this. Gospel comes into the context of culture and people, and that influence, the whole messiness of that. The church, in some sense, has a lot of uh, remarks and this taintedness of the culture and the Corinthians in general. So when Paul mentions in uh, the latter chapter, in chapter 6, verse 9 through 11, he writes this, or do you not know that 
the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor, the, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. When gospel came in, it was evident the people came from brokenness and messiness, but gospel had a transforming power. We actually mentioned that constantly through the series, those are two aspects of our readiness that need to embrace our brokenness. And some of, some of us might not have the outwardly um, immoral lifestyle background, but the obviously self-absorption and greedy and you, all everything's about you, that was there. So embracing the brokenness, but at the same time, embracing and welcoming the transforming power of the gospel. So now let's go to the historical background of 1 Corinthians. Let's start with Paul. Paul came to... Corinth during his second missionary journey, and while he was staying in Corinth, there was much persecution. In Acts chapter 18, we just had a uh, quiet time on that passage, and it's uh, refreshing to us. What happened was, because of persecution, Paul was about to leave the town, and God shows up, the Holy Spirit says, directly to Paul, do not be afraid, no harm will be done to you. Continue to preach and preach the word of God. And there's a kind of subtle remark. Dr. Luke mentions and quotes what the Holy Spirit says. In this town, Paul came trying to paraphrase, there are many of my people. God's election, God's sovereign choice. And that's why we should share the gospel and share faith, because unlike uh, the typical impossibility that we face, God has chosen them. And then those who are chosen will open up to the gospel. It is not the foolishness to them. It is the power of God. But notice that when uh, Paul planted his church and he stayed one, one year, year and a six month, specifically mentions in Acts 18. And they were strengthened. And after that, Paul would go back to uh, Asia and he went to Ephesus and then 
During the third missionary journey, he heard the news about the new converts in, in Corinth. Lots of problems. And there are two types of reports and questions. One of them was the household, household of Chloe. Chloe was a woman, probably wealthy woman, had a lot of uh, uh, people. When they say household, uh, the word oikos con con uh, continually, not only the blood relationship, but the people who are serving in that house and servants, all those people. And some of them came to Paul and reported, this is what's going on. There's an incest, and church is not doing anything about it. There is a division. There is this and that. And some of them really saying they're Apollos, very eloquent speaker. They are just, you know, Tim Apollos. And there's a, oh, we are loyal to Paul and Tim Paul. And they say, wow, some of them would say, we're of Christ, sounding much more spiritual, right? So all these things are going on. What do we do? And the second thing is, there are actually delegates from the church, maybe the same people, maybe the people who came on a separate occasion, delivered a letter from the church which contained several questions. We need your advice. We need your answer to this. So Paul will respond to that. And that was the occasion why Paul wrote this letter. About 80, 55, or 54. And third thing that is important to remember is we need to understand Paul's relationship with the Corinthian church. Remember, he became spiritual father. He not only uh, planted the church, he was not only the one of the teachers, but he became their, spirit, their spiritual fathers and cared for them. So they meant much to him. But there was a so much friction. And, and we could see the divisions in the church, but the more deeper problem for Paul and church as a whole was a friction and doubts and suspicions and challenge of apostles' qualification, Paul's qualification. Because Paul was not the original 12, uh, and they say. And then there are some apostles, quote-unquote, sent by the Jerusalem church who had a recommendation letters, who are undermining the authority of Paul. So when did this was going on? So first, um, 49 to 80, 49 to 51, Paul came, planted a church, and, and left the church. And then he heard the news that people are practicing still sexual immorality and idolatry, stuff like that. So I will call it four letters. The first letter, which was lost, letter A was ineffective. Do not associate with, Paul, with people who are continually exercising and living in sin, so-called brothers and sisters. Do not even associate with them. There is no uh, 
repentance and whatsoever. So because of that, letter B was this uh, First Corinthians. We call it Paul's first letter to Corinthians, but it, this is a, in actuality, it's a second one. And so what uh, question that come up is, why is that first letter was not included, or third letter was not included? Um, God's wisdom, probably. And then when, when the church fathers were uh, evaluating the value of the document, the anointing of the Holy Spirit, inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is this uh, widely ready for the council for the church? And then probably, the scholars will say, the canonization uh, process, the first letter and the third letter, letter A and letter B were dropped because of that. So in any, any sense, um, letter C, because Paul didn't get any kind of response and correction and repentance from the church, he actually visits the church before letter C. But in this visit, he mentions this visit as a painful visit. People who were against, and they were the powerful leaders, leaders of the Corinthian church, and they ganged up on Paul, and actually they were opposing Paul's leadership and Paul's counsel, and they're saying all these things about his qualifications also. So it was very hurtful. So he would uh, mention that as a painful visit. So coming out of that, he wrote uh, in, in, the, in the, the second Corinthians that he will mention as a tear, the, the letter of tears, but mostly known as a severe letter, letter. What happened was Paul wrote harsh rebukes. He didn't hold back. So much so that after he sent that letter in the hands of Titus, he was so worried. How will they receive? And they're like my children, spiritual children. I want to, I want to continue to care for them. I, want to, I don't want them to go astray. But because of this hurt and harsh rebuke that they receive, what if they turn and close their mind and their heart against me? That was the biggest concern. So Paul, traveling toward to Corinth, he couldn't wait. So he found finally Titus and heard the good news, good report. Surprisingly, because of this harsh, rebuking, severe letter, letter of tears, many of Corinthians repented and even cast out all those fake teachers or the false leaders, the people who opposed Paul. So out of his gratitude and joy in response to their uh, repentance, Paul writes Second Corinthians. Second Corinthians sounds so much softer and tender and 
full of comfort. So in all this, what we see is the Corinthians who thought they were smart and arrogant, especially we're going to talk about Greek philosophy uh, a little bit. And basically, the, when you think about philosophy, philo means love. Sophie means from Sophia, wisdom. Philosophy means the one who loves, love of the wisdom. The, in Greek culture, all these teacher, traveling teachers will come and teach and not only the rhetorics and how to speak, make a public speech, but also logic, but also, also different kinds of way of life, wisdom. What we might call it a self-help, Oprah Winfrey stuff. And, and then the Greek philosophers will come more academically trained. People will gather people, and they become their tutors, teachers. And they will charge them. The more popular and the more well-known the teacher is, the more expensive the tuition is, obviously. And that is why when Paul came into the town, although he's very well-trained in Greek philosophy, in, in Greco-Roman world, he was a highly educated person, trained to do. He actually chose not to use any of that and did not charge intentionally. So he would not be identified as, oh, he's one of the philosophy teachers. And he's uh, sharing wisdom, a wisdom of Jesus, of many others. He wanted to dis distinguish and differentiate the gospel way above all these worldly wisdoms. So when you think about you know, Paul's reason for not getting paid, actually choosing, refusing to getting, getting paid. Uh, is it God-honoring, God-pleasing? Motivation was there. Now we turn to purpose and structure of 1 Corinthians. In that all context, we know that the occasion or purpose of the letter was to reply to the problems and inquiries inquiries of the Corinthian church. If you're familiar with the Pauline letters, the Apostle Paul's letters, he wrote 13. Among the 13, this is unique, uniquely practical. So typically, this is Paul's approach. The first half would be, say, for example, Ephesians would be the doctrine what you ought to believe, why it is in the name of God, basically. This is doctrine. And then the second half, it would be practical application. This is how you li live those doctrines here. And Romans, uh, all those letters will have a typical format to that. But Paul, because of this occasion, Waste no time. After greeting and saying hi and thanksgiving, he jumps right into the problems and inquiries. 
in terms of structure, we could think of it as one half is in, uh, reports from the Chloe's household, and the second half is the, he's responding to the, the letter question, the questions from the letter of Corinthian church. The first half, he starts with the divisions in the church and worldly wisdom, spiritual immaturity, spiritual babes, he calls it, and challenge against Apostle Paul's qualification, authority, and apostleship, incest in the church, the man, a believer, was sleeping with uh, his father's wife. She was like a stepmother, basically. And church didn't do anything about that, and he will actually address that. And lawsuits between believers. So these Christians are known by Jesus' love and love one another. And then Roman uh, court, and they will come distributing together um, and then they will get these remarks. I thought you guys are all about loving one another. Why can't you guys settle? Well, this goes on in our days also, too. And it will be important to look at the universal principle and take that application very wisely into our culture. It's not a blanket statement that no one should sue anyone kind of thing. And obviously, the sexual immorality, this was part of the over-sexualized culture, widely accepted, and it's almost like a cheap grace mentality was there. He addresses very sharply. And then go to the, going to the second half, chapter 7 through 16, he replies to the letter about the issues of singleness, marriage, and divorce, I have. I became a Christian. Uh, what, I, what, I, what do I do about my marriage? Uh, my non-Christian husband, who is very pagan. What do I do? Those issues. Um, and then chapter eight. From our point of view, he deals with gray areas. Meat offered to. Idols. There's so many uh, different uh, gods, Greek pantheons, not, not only Aphrodite, where so many different kinds of Greek gods and idol worships were there. So the question of can we eat that? People who came from Jewish background, I have a major problem. People who are from Gentile background, the Corinthian natives and Greeks and Romans didn't have any problem. So there was a lot of distribute uh, and conflicts among them as well. And the problem that happened in uh, head covering culturally, is it really cultural? And is it gender roles? And maybe uh, this will be very interesting hot potato topic for our... So, Chapter 11, don't miss it if you are interested. And the problem of the Lord's Supper, our day's communion is a little piece of bread and dipping into the wine. Back then, it's a full-blown dinner. So you bring some of the stuff, and then the rich people will bring the good food, 
and they start eating. And the, the poor people couldn't bring much, and there's not, not much to eat, and feeling excluded. Uh, probably the, the people who are coming in late feel very, so be, feel, feeling like a little social outcast. And then, and the uh, irreverence of people getting drunk because it's a literal wine. So he will deal with that. And the spiritual gifts. One good thing, and the problematic area of the Corinthian church, was this church was passionate worshipers. This church was open for supernatural things. The miracles are happening, the spiritual gifts, and not only the speaking in tongues, gifts of healing, prophecy, all that, a lively worship. But the problem was their egos are big as well. So in the worship, instead of order and difference to each other and honoring one another, there's so many disorders going on. So many people who are bragging and becoming very arrogant about their spiritual gifts. And Paul will address that issue. And the resurrection of the dead, one of the Greek philosophy main problem was a dualism. Gnosticism basically said the materials are bad, the immaterials are good. So the people who are actually going for the holy things, godly, they want to be more uh, paganistic way of godly was uh, disregarding all the needs and denying the fact that the bodily resurrection was really there. And the people who are common people, and lower class people, very pleasure driven people, well, my spirit is taken care of by the, by the religion, but my body I have it for a while. I might as well use it for pleasure. Like, today's the day we would party and eat, drink, and be merry. So tomorrow that I will not have nobody, kind of thing. So the resurrection of Christ, which meant that our hope for the coming resurrection of each believer, Paul Expounds in no, I mean, in, in just full force, passion, and no other epistles he does that. He takes the whole, entire chapter, Romans, I mean, 1 Corinthians 15, and he expounds on that. And lastly, he goes back to the promises that they made, and they, uh, the Jerusalem church that was struck, in, uh, struck by the famine. And the poor brothers and sisters, he urges them, extorts them to, to collect. Be ready when I come. So he, he concludes with that. So if you look at all this, there's so many things. But I don't want us to get lost in the midst of these so many diverse issues. So the most important thing, I think, is the key themes of First Corinthians, I looked through commentaries and, and I looked at study Bibles. I looked at many things. There's too many. 
Like, how are you going to remember like 10, 7, or 8? So I took, worked hard on, not only for myself, for our community. There are only three. And this will be very critical for us to understand upcoming messages of the series. Let's look at the bottom first. Two root problems of the Corinthian church. Number one, influence of Greek philosophy. Greek philosophy of people who love wisdom, the external eloquence of speech, loves the form rather than actual content and depth, love the fact that there is a dualistic approach of things, and love the wisdom, I mean the knowledge part of that. So for example, eating meat, if you're, if you're uh, a Corinthian natives, and if you're Roman, you don't have any Jewish background, and there's no kind of dietary concerns for spirituality. And then, theoretically, theologically, they have this knowledge, which Paul affirms, because idol doesn't exist. If the meat, even though meat was offered to idol worship, because idol, there is no other gods. So eat freely as you can if it doesn't bother your conscience. So they will say, we know the gospel. You don't. So it's the knowledge thing. When you have a knowledge, you use it like a banner. And many of the weaker brothers and sisters, the Jewish background people, could not handle this. And even watching others. So what is the problem here? The influence is the knowledge glorified and worldly wisdom is glorified. And, and then learning about the self-help books and different things, even in our culture. And you know so much of the knowledge in your head. And is that really affecting the way you treat your brothers and sisters? And even liking Apollos, Apollos and different speakers also too. Oh, that's very common to our culture too. So and so's church. We could easily say those things. They became a superstar, celebrities. And there was no wonder in Corinthian church there was a division for that as well. Did you hear that this morning's scripture reading? Paul refers to Corinthian church as church of God. Called to be saints in Christ Jesus. He didn't say, the church that I planted, no. Apostle Paul's little church in Corinth, no. Anyway, the dualism, the resurrection thing was already that, right? So Greek philosophy, in our, in our culture, what is really there? There's an underlying philosophy. We might not be Greek culture. We might not even identify with terminologies. So 
OC mentality, and Southern Californians mentality of really the affluence and comfort is way to go. You move away from all the dangers, move into the gated community, and bigger the house and the bigger the salary and job. All that is what matters. Is that really? Are we bringing those things into, into church culture, influenced by that? Do we discriminate in a sense that who's, who has a more better education, who has a making more money, and social status, and whatnot? It's easy, subtly. It's not just the, um, the owner of MBA team Red, caught red-handed about his racism. But in, in our hearts, do we deal with those fears against the ethnic groups that we're not so comfortable with? The second part is, stay with me on this, um, it's a theological term, over-realize Eschatology. Eschatology is a study about the end times, right? So the good term is realize eschatology. Realize eschatology is the end day will come and the blessings and glory is there, but in present time, we can foretaste those glories, foretaste that joy. So do not live as if the real hope doesn't exist. That's a realized uh, eschatology. It came from this idea of a kingdom of God. And for, for Old Testament people, it was very simple. They are waiting and suffering until the Messiah comes. And they come Messiah, what happens? The whole liberation happens and everything happens. The problem was they didn't expect that Messiah would come twice. First coming of Jesus Christ and second coming of Jesus Christ. So that's why the New Testament illuminates this kingdom age. So they'll call it this way. The first coming of Christ, that this age has begun. The coming age, the, the day of the Lord will come. And in between this tension time, we're living in, in it. The theologians call this already, but not yet. Kingdom has come. God's reign has already come because Jesus came, but not yet. We are sanctified already, but not fully yet. We're not glorified. The power of God is, belongs to us already, but not fully yet. So if you look at this balance, realize uh, eschatology, if you're under-realized, what's, what's going to be? You're going to be uh, living in defeatism, fatalism. There's nothing we can do. We just wait for until... And this is a really bad attitude also, too. It's not a faith attitude. Kingdom life and Christian life is not just waiting until we die to go to heaven. This is the idea. 
There's nothing I could do in terms of making our society, being a salt and light, against uh, racism, against poverty, against uh, church being the light and salt. Uh, it's going to get worse anyway. So let it die. And you, you become so pessimistic about doing anything. Over-realize eschatology is triumphanism. In other words, the everything's about victory, overly satisfied, claiming we are the children of kings, we should live like the kings, therefore we should live the fullest, bring the best rope, best car, best health, whatever we should name and claim it. So Corinthians, being a majority of them coming from Gentile background, and obviously tilt toward to the overly realized. Martin Luther, during the Reform age, coined this term, it's not my thing, theology of glory. So actually Corinthians live in the theology of glory. In Apostle Paul's eyes, they had already become kings. You have become king without us. We became scum of the earth. We'll get into that later. For now, think about this. What does Californians look like? What do Californians look like? What do Americans look like in general? There are a small percentage of Christian people who are very pessimistic, very uh, living in defeatism, and living wait until the heaven really comes. Until we die, there's nothing I can do, kind of attitude. There is no social active involvement whatsoever. But vast majority of our concern, especially Californians, is Joel Austin's gospel, the, the largest church in the whole America, is uplifting this over-realized eschatology, theology of glory, becoming better you, your better, your best life now. If that is really true, we should be concerned about that when, when the when we go to heaven, and that's not better than this. But this is so easily misleading, isn't it? You could believe in now you are a winner today, and you could claim the power of Jesus. Because of that, what they're saying, what the Corinthians are doing, was basically uh, with the spiritual gifts that I have, the gift of healing, I'm going to pray for everybody. And you will be healed. You know why some people are not healed? Not because God is not mighty, but because of tension between already and not yet. On the day, there will be no more death, no more dying, no more suffering, no more sorrows, no more tears. But until that day, until that day, the real lies eschatology and giving us a good balance of hope is rejoicing in sorrowful, 
weakness. Joy in suffering because of the hope. So I look at my brother. I look at, we were praying yesterday, I mean, early morning yesterday, praying for the tons of list of people who are sick among us, among our loved ones, the cancer. We're praying, but we're at the same time not demanding, holding on to our Abba Father, rejoicing in the sufferings we have because of the coming hope. So if you look at, understand this, you will understand the spectrum of different spirituality in America. Many of those overly zealous, uh, the, the theology of glory people are on TV and media. That's the problematic, isn't it? So now we know this root problem. The theme, I'm just regurgitating actually by now. First one is a unity of the church. We're called by God into one body of Christ, so we must be of same mind in keeping the unity and becoming an interdependent member. Second, hope of resurrection. The bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ is not on, essential not only for Christian faith and doctrine, but also for the lasting hope for all believers in resurrection in Christ. And third, this is the, the largest uh, theme that I lump most of it into. And that's why we define our series, True Spirituality Studies in 1 Corinthians. The spirit, true spirituality requires a theology of the cross, not a theology of glory. That means a truly spiritually mature person does not seek glory now, but willingly takes the way of the cross now for the lasting glory later in Christ. Self-giving, humility, surrendering, honoring others more than us. Difference, valuing weakest member of our church rather than becoming knowledge, becoming powerful, becoming very effective in your speech and eloquence and all that in God's eyes, that's a worldly wisdom. I'm going to stop here. Actually, the exposition of verse 1 through 3, um, I wanted to include that, but I think we have more than enough. So, um, my last challenge for our community. As we study this, would you ask yourself, am I pursuing true spirituality? Am I pursuing the right type of spiritual maturity what Christians ought to be, or am I misled to the slippery slope of what secularization, the popular trendy philosophy of the world, came into the church, including the spiritual leaders? We are not that different from Corinthian church, really. And some might say the Vegas is the right type. No, Vegas, not, not just the 
the sexuality and immorality, but the wealthiness and all that is actually more applicable to the Californians. And we have both. So my hope and prayer for each one of us that we'll be discerning just because it's Sophia to not love all the wisdom, the wisdom of this world looks very appealing, attractive, quick fixes, and renders much, much of a shortcut. What God offers, his wisdom, looks at first foolishness. The message of the cross is foolish. To choose to die in your reconciliation with when Rika mentioned, it looks foolish. You lose everything. But in God's eyes, that is the fullness of life. That is the way to glory. And then many Christians now are astray because of this. And you see that. And as we're getting into the, each chapter, these issues will be applicable because now that we know the context. And may God help us to pursue true spirituality. Let's pray. Father, gracious God, I thank you for this book. And as we are excited about uh, delving into each chapter, we pray that you'll keep us humble and teachable, open-minded to what your word, what your spirit really has to say through the scripture. And teach us to be mindful and discerning and vigilant about all the distractions and luring voices as we are learning through and journeying through this series. We pray all these things in the name of the Father, of the Son, of the Holy Spirit. Amen.